The following audio is from Gold Country Baptist Church in Shingle Springs, California. Visit gcb.church to find more resources and to learn about our church. Well, if you would open your copy of God's Holy Word to Exodus chapter 17, we have been journeying through the book of Exodus. For any of you who are joining us here today, and as we've been going through this book and seeing Israel in the wilderness, we've been seeing that we're not that much different than them. I've been struck going through this book that I I feel inadequate like Moses did. We can fear like Israel did. Many can complain like they did under far less difficult circumstances. We've been seeing that, but we've also been seeing how every part of this story fits in with the bigger story that is the gospel. And we're going to see that especially in this next section. And and we're going to see a, a familiar and repeated pattern here. They are short of their needs. There's, there's a shortage of water, and they're going to be short with Moses again. But more than that, they're going to sin and fall short of the glory of God. But his judgment is not going to fall on them by grace. God is going to provide a way to save their lives yet again, and he's going to show us yet again the Savior to come. So look for those things as we read Exodus chapter 17, verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of Sin, or it may have been pronounced Sin, short for Sinai in that area, by stages according to the commandment of the Lord, and they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so. In the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of that place Massa and Meribah, that means testing and quarreling, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So that was ultimately what they were saying in this. Is the Lord, and the idea is not just is he by our side, but is he on our side? Is he with us? Is the Lord for us, for our good, is what they were questioning. Some would say, it seems like God is against me, because I'm not seeing him in my life in the way that I think it should be. I don't feel his presence, people can say. I don't feel his blessing. Maybe you feel the opposite. 
Maybe you say, I I don't think a God of love would let this happen. Or where is God when children die? We've seen that on the news horribly and terribly this week. People ask, where was God? When? And you can fill in the blank. Some of you in your own lives, we need to remember God is where he always is. And he is the same place where he was when his own son died for evil sin. And he is at work here. And there is a rock to stand on here. There is a place of his grace that this passage is going to show us. There's a a solid rock that we can stand on when everything else is sinking sand. And even for sinful Israel who was stuck between a rock and a hard place with nothing to drink, no water, this is a life and death situation. But the issue is who or what can satisfy your thirst? Who or what are you going to look to for your deepest needs? That's the question before us. I remember being in Israel at Masada. This is a rock fortress out in the desert with the sun beating down on me. And I I hadn't had water to drink for a while. And I just remember how unbelievably thirsty I was and, and how much thirst out there in that land of Israel can affect you in the desert. But the question before us here is, what did the original author Moses want God's people to take away from this event? I think first and foremost, in the original context, the takeaway is, you shall not test the Lord. You shall not test the Lord. In fact, the main point is, don't test the Lord, trust the Lord. I want you to notice in verse 1, It was actually the Lord's command that had moved them there. The Lord was testing them. And yet they're going to turn and test the Lord in this. But Moses had received God's messages for his people. Moses was God's messenger. He was God's mediator. But they're basically accusing him of being a murderer in verse 3. They think his plan is for all of them to die. And so they basically say, you first, Moses. And... Moses says, they're ready to stone me. We have a saying, don't shoot the messenger. Moses would say, don't stone the messenger. I'm just the messenger here. But they want to put him on trial. And ultimately, they're trying and testing the Lord and his patience. And and what does testing look like in verse 2? Well, it's quarreling or grumbling. In verse 3, some of the translations have murmuring or disputing complaining or arguing. We heard a couple of weeks ago from Frank Erb, Philippians 2.14, do everything without complaining or arguing. Paul Tripp calls this sin of grumbling the background drone of a discontented heart. I think that's a good word picture. It's this background drone, this grumbling, this murmuring that comes out of a discontented heart, and so it keeps coming out of us. How's your heart today? What we see in this passage is their hearts overflow, and they overflow with rudeness. Give us 
And then they overflow with accusing words. You want us to die, don't you? You want us all to die. Why did you do this to us? And like us, we can be rude in our words. We can be attacking in our words. Their quarreling was rooted in their cravings. Listen to James 4. What causes quarrels among you? What is it? Think of the last conflict or quarrel you had. What was the cause of that? And I think our our flesh wants to say, well, it's that sinful person. It, It was the situation. But God's Word says, what causes quarrels? Don't they come from you, from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. So you covet, and you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. See, that was Israel's problem. But that, that's my problem. That's, that's your problem. It's not about in that conflict him or her or what he or she is not giving to us. It's about you and you not getting what you want and so you sin. Or you are willing to sin in order to get what you want. Your words or your body language, your manipulation or whatever it is, your coveting, craving heart is actually what's causing your quarrels according to God's wisdom. And you, you fight those outside you only if you lose that fight on the inside first. That's what James 4 is saying. I encourage you to study that further. And he goes on to say you need to submit yourself to God. You need to ask of God. You need to submit everything to God. Otherwise, those desires become demands. Even good things can become God things. They can become, take the place of God in our life, and when that happens, words become weapons. It's when something that is nice to have becomes a need that I must have now. That's the problem. So you think about, well, was water such a bad thing? No, water is not a bad thing. It actually is a need that we have to have to live even just a few days We can't go without it, but it wasn't a bad thing. But when it became the biggest thing to them on their timetable, bad things started coming out of their mouths. And they weren't turning to the Lord for that need. And it's the same for us. It's from the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. It's okay to want physical needs. And we sometimes will use expressions for not just our, our physical needs, but things like peace, respect, love, things that we desire that we might not need to stay alive for a few days, but that are important in God's Word. It's okay to want those things, but we have to submit them to God. Or the, any of those things or more can take the place of God. James says you don't have because you don't ask God. And you're demanding it from others. It's not wrong to have certain things. What's wrong is for anything to have us like that. It's not wrong to have things. It's wrong when those things 
have us and own us and control us like that. They did not have water because they didn't ask God. They didn't turn to God, and they actually turned on God's servant. And so they're not just being testy with Moses here. They're actually testing the Lord. That's what the inspired commentary is. And so that's why the end of verse 2, he asks, why do you test the Lord? And the end of verse 7 says, they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Is he, is he really in our midst or not? Because I'm thinking not. And then this is despite all that God had been doing for them in the time before. How could they go through all that and then ask, is God really among us? But we can do the same thing. I mean, we've got more than that in God's Word. We've seen more in our lives, and we can so quickly doubt Him. But Israel is not just disputing here. They're doubting God. Their words were godless. They're not just disrespecting Moses. They're actually distrusting God, despite the miraculous manna that was on the ground that morning. That morning they woke up and there was miraculous manna on the ground. And that moment there is this pillar of cloud above them that they could look up and see showing God's presence. But we've got his evidence of him all around us. I mean, just look at the creation. Look at his word. We have everything that we need for life and godliness in his word. And we don't look to him and trust him. His mercies were new every morning for Israel. But they were trying his patience and denying his presence. And and they felt like their back was against a wall. But they forgot what God had just done with the Red Sea, that he had parted into walls and had delivered them through. That wasn't that long before this, but they've forgotten the, the mighty hand, the deliverance of God. They're not turning to this mighty God, but we can do that too. We turn everywhere else. <clears throat> we go to Google or we, we go to friends. We go to other sources other than going to God in prayer to get wisdom This is what Moses later wrote. Take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. God, in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. That's this story here, Massa. It was named Masa Meribah, and that's Deuteronomy 6. He's talking about they're testing the Lord at Masa. They were doubting if God was in their midst, but he is a jealous God, as Moses said. He has anger toward those who test him in that way. This is a serious thing because Jesus in the wilderness, when he's being tested, He said this to Satan, it is written, you shall not test the Lord. That that very word there from Moses. You shall not test the Lord your God. That is a sin and that is satanic. That's a big deal to test the Lord. How serious was this? Moses said in Deuteronomy 9.22, at Massah, you provoked the Lord to wrath. 
They actually provoked him to wrath in this story. Complaining deserves wrath. And it provokes the sovereign God who is saving and sustaining and orchestrating all things in our life. We need to see the book of Exodus is showing us this is a big deal. It's not just being hard on others when we're grumbling. It's, it's actually showing a heart that is hardening. That's what Psalm 95 says. This is through God's voice that was leading Israel. Today, you heard this earlier, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as at the day at Massah in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test. It's saying that their, their hearts were hardened at Masad, at Marabah. When they were putting God to the test, they were hardening their hearts. And he says, don't do that. When you hear God's voice today, don't harden your hearts. To hear God's word and then just to go on grumbling. To hear God's word in the preaching of his word and then just to go back from praising to complaining again is a heart that is hardening. And God would diagnose what's happening here is rebelling when we're resisting his word, when we hear his word, but we're not going to change. We're not going to trust him. We're, we're testing God's patience. Listen to Hebrews 3. The Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. And here's his remedy that he gives Hebrews 3.12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. We need to take care of this. Is there an evil, unbelieving heart that can fall away from God in our midst? What do we do? Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This is what sin does. It's deceitful, and it hardens us, and we don't even think we're hardening. As it is said, and he keeps going, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And then Hebrews 4 keeps coming back to this. Those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. And so again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. This is incredibly important to God. What Moses says, David says, and the Holy Spirit says this. We need to exhort one another. Because sin is dangerous. Sin is deceiving. Sin is, is hardening to evil unbelief. Don't receive the good news in vain, Hebrews is saying. Today is the day of salvation. And that's from Psalm 95. That's where we started our service. It says, come let us sing to the Lord, to the rock of our salvation. And then it talks about Masa and Marabah. So part of what we need to see is we need to come and we need to praise the rock of our salvation. And that takes us to the second point, And that is look to the rock that saves. Look at Exodus 17, 6. Behold, God says, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and the water shall come. And so the people are going to drink instead of dying of thirst. And God is speaking here. Behold means look at this. You need to look, pay attention to this. 
These people who are about to throw rocks at Moses, God shows them a rock to save their lives. They wanted to end Moses' life. God is going to point them to a rock that will save their lives. And this is the first time that word rock, the rock, that phrase is used in the Bible in this way. And later Moses in chapter 33 is going to say, show me your glory. And God explains to him, you can't, you can't see the fullness of me and live. But he says, I will put you there. And he hides him in the cleft of the rock so that he can pass by. And then he can see some of the glory after it is passed and from his presence. This is where we get that lyric, rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me, what, hide myself in thee, that, that comes out of this, this rock, this image that for ages has been used of, of God and being hidden in the cleft of that rock, that rock of ages. Makes me think of the Oregon coast where, I don't know if you've ever driven Highway 1 there, but it's beautiful. They have these huge, massive rocks coming out of the ocean or along the side of the ocean they're, they're beautiful, they're immovable, they're not going anywhere. These are massive rocks. And I remember one time on the beach, I was there with my kids, and, and, and suddenly the, the wind really picked up, and the rain really picked up, and it was blowing, and the sand was even kind of hurting me as it was blowing. And, and, and what did I do? I, I went and I found one of those big rocks, and there was actually a cleft in the rock where I could go in there, and I sat down, and, and I, I realize what the Bible talks about, being in the cleft of the rock, being safe from the, the, the storm around you. The Psalms talk about that all the time. Or they also talk about how in a hot desert sun, the, the rock would give you shade. If you could find a good big rock, you could find shade. Or in a flood, or if there was fighting, to, to, to have a rock fortress that gave you the high ground. So in the Bible, these are some of the images of the rock. It's a solid foundation. It's strong. It's immovable. It's a place of safety. It's a a shelter in a time of storm, and it's a secure refuge. And for Moses, the rock became more than a place. It became a personal name and title for the God who saved and Gave life. So this is what he said in Deuteronomy 32 that Israel in the desert, they rejected the rock, their Savior. He says to them, You deserted the rock who fathered you. So this isn't talking about a physical rock. This is the the rock that gave you life. You forgot God. And he calls them to praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock, a faithful God. But he says of God's enemies in Deuteronomy 32, where are their gods? Where, are, where is the rock that they took refuge in? So he's comparing the gods of the false gods to, to a rock they took refuge in. Let them, let those gods give you shelter. If they're really gods, let them do what a rock does. But he says there is no God besides our God. Their rock is not like our rock, as even our enemies Concede. It says, even our enemies know that what they try to find refuge in is not like our rock. Where did Moses get the idea 
that God is the rock, the Savior, the source of life, the shelter, refuge, faithful, and all that, it seems to start right here in Exodus. When God says to him, look, behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. Horeb is where God first appeared to Moses in chapter 3. He revealed himself. The burning bush there, a physical bush now, is transformed by God's presence. And now this image of the rock is going to be transformed. Listen to Psalm 114. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord who turned the rock into a pool, into springs of, of water. As you think about that, the psalmist says, tremble before the Lord who can do that. Who ever heard of such a thing? And this rock imagery is transformed more in the Psalms as, as David spoke of his personal rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my stronghold. He said, blessed be the rock and let the God of my salvation be exalted. That was how David spoke of the rock here following Moses' pattern. And in contrast to to Israel, who was not honoring God with their words, David would say and pray, and we need to pray with him, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, my Lord, my rock, and my redeemer. Lord, let me not be like them with, with thoughts of my heart and meditations and what words that come out of my mouth that aren't pleasing to you as the rock. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 10. But we can look at many places that talk about God as a rock, redeeming, saving, and our security. Let me just read a couple more. Psalm 61, as you turn to Corinthians, says, I call to you when my heart is faint. This is what we should do when we're faint. I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, my strong tower. We need a We need a place higher than where we are in this world. We need God to lead us there and find refuge in him. Psalm 62, right after that, says, God alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress, so I shall not be greatly shaken. When you think of God in that way, it should help you to not be shaken. On God rests my salvation, my mighty rock. 1 Corinthians 10.1 For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Just look at verse 4. This is talking about the time of Moses. They all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And listen to this. And the rock was who? Christ. Moses had called God the rock. Paul now calls Christ the rock. Christ is God. The rock was Christ. Moses said Israel put God to the test. Look at verse 9 where Paul says, We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. He's talking about them in the wilderness. They were putting Christ to test in the wilderness. Verse 10 nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. 
Again, this is how serious grumbling is. They, they would be destroyed later, some of them. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages have come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. Look to the rock, Jesus. That's not allegory. That is, a, that is an analogy of a, of a spiritual reality. Israel had asked, is God among us or not? The reality of Emmanuel, of Jesus, is that God is with us. He's with us in Christ always. But Paul says here, don't, if you think you stand firm, take heed lest you fall. Don't think you're better or different than Israel. Watch yourself lest you fall like they did. And when they grumbled, they were testing. They were testing Christ. They were testing Christ. And spiritually, Christ gave Israel their drink. In the wilderness, when they drank, Paul says the rock was Christ. And so go back to Exodus 17, but don't be unaware that Christ was there. In this old familiar story, there is more than meets the eye. Remember the time when Peter's eyes were open and he confessed, you are the Christ, the, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The rock is who Christ is. The confession that he is the Messiah, he is God the Son. That is the foundation of the church and that takes us to what we remember on Palm Sunday. As Jesus rode into Jerusalem, remember they, they wanted the crowds to be silent, and he says, if the believers keep their voices silent, the very rocks will cry out. They're going to cry out to the rock of prophecy who's coming. Here, Hosanna. Hosanna, they were saying, and that comes right out of Psalm 118, where it prophesied. Psalm 118 prophesied. What they're chanting on Palm Sunday is part of a prophecy that Israel's leaders would reject the rock of offense. There would be a, a rock they would stumble over. And in the process, the Messiah would become the chief cornerstone. This would be marvelous. This would be the day that the Lord has made that they would rejoice and be glad in it. If they would say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's all from Psalm 118. And Jesus, that week, repeatedly quoted that prophecy that they were chanting from calling himself a rock of stumbling for the Jews, but he would become the church's one foundation stone. Jesus Christ, our Lord, as the hymn says, by water and the word. So look to the rock that saves, but it's not just who he is, but notice what he does. Notice what happens to the rock in Exodus 17. Exodus 17, verse 5. And the Lord said to Moses, and pay attention to the language here, pass on before the people taking with you some of the elders of Israel. This is important because the, the leaders also need to be seeing this in a special way to help lead the people. He says, And take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile. You remember the staff, if you know the story of Exodus, it was used for a lot more than striking the Nile. It was used in many miracles. Why is it that he's highlighting the staff that struck the Nile. Well, that was when God's judgment came on Egypt and its water for their sin. 
That's when all the plagues started. He turned it to blood so they could not drink the water, the whole land. This is the staff of judgment that struck. He highlights that staff that stuck, that's that staff that struck and brought judgment and death. Bring that staff. I want you guys to see this, the staff that, that struck the Nile and brought judgment. See that they've got that staff in your hand. And remember, we, we read earlier at Massa, they, they had provoked God's wrath. It was a hard-hearted rebellion, the scriptures comment on this. Their rebellion and their grumbling deserved a rod of justice. And in fact, this word struck, that struck, the staff that struck, that was last used in Exodus 12. For when God struck the firstborn of Egypt, he struck them dead. He struck all the firstborn of the Egyptians and they died. And then later Israelites who grumble in the desert, the same verb is going to be used. They're struck dead in the book of Numbers. They grumble the same sin, and they're struck dead. Here is Moses bringing the rod, the rod that struck. Look to the rock here. This is where the rock comes in. The rock saves. The rock is actually what is struck instead of the people. Instead of like Egypt and their firstborns had been struck, instead of like the the judgment that came when the staff struck the water and none of them could, could drink, The rock is actually struck instead. Look at verse 6. Behold, I, this is God speaking, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. God the Father is in heaven. I take this as God the Son in some form standing there and and that language of to stand before someone is, is used in the law of Moses for someone to be judged. You stand before judgment. You stand before your accusers when you're on trial. That's how this phrase is used by Moses. So Deuteronomy 9.17. The men who have the dispute shall stand before the Lord and before the priests and the judges. So the quarreling parties were, were tested they, they stood before judgment and justice to see if there would be pardon or to see if there would be justice on them. This is the language that would you expect men stand before God. We stand, everyone will stand before God and his judgment. But here, don't miss this, God says, I will stand before man on the rock God says, I'm going to come. I'm going to be the one standing before you. You should stand before me, but I'm going to come and stand before you. They were actually being tested by God. Israel was in chapter 15 and 16. It says it twice. But now they're testing God. They're disputing, is he really among us or not? God says, I'm going to stand before the men who have that dispute with me. This is the place that Israel should have been. They should have been standing in the place of the condemned. They should have been struck in judgment, and all of them should have died. But you see what happens here? The blow of the rod of God falls on the rock instead. And water flows out of this rock so that all of them are actually going to live. And so, behold, I mean, look to the rock 
that saves, that the rock that actually is in the place of these sinners who shamefully are scoffing at Moses, but we need to look beyond that to God the Son who was bearing shame and scoffing, rude, in my place, condemned, he stood, and then he sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. What a picture of the gospel this is. So look to the rock that saves. Look what happens to the rock, and then look what comes out, what flows from this rock. The Lord says in verse 6, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and the rock and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders. This wasn't just a private thing that he did. The elders see it. They behold in their sight the Lord standing. And in some way, they look to this rock. They look to this rock that was struck to give water for life. They saw the rod of judgment, and they saw it fall, but it didn't fall on them. It, it, instead of wrath being poured out on them, wrath, water is actually being poured out. Isn't this amazing? The stroke of justice didn't bring death. It brought life as they looked to the rock of their salvation. That's not reading the New Testament into the Old Testament. You can find these images in the Old Testament, in the prophet Isaiah in particular. So Isaiah 11 promises that Messiah, at his second coming, here's the language, he shall strike, it's the same word, he shall strike the earth with his rod and he shall slay the wicked. That's what he's going to do at the end of the age. But then chapter 12 of Isaiah says, for believers, his wrath can be turned away, and then it says this image, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, using that Exodus picture there. In Isaiah 32, behold, a king, this is Messiah, will reign in righteousness, and it will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. Jesus is the rock in a weary land. He is the shelter in a time of storm. Oh, Jesus is that rock. He used this word struck in Isaiah 50. Jesus speaking says, I give my back to those who strike he says, my, my cheeks to those who would strike and who would pull out the beard. He's using the same language of being struck. Isaiah 53 talks about the man of sorrows. Listen to this. We esteemed him stricken. It's the same word, smitten of God. The same verb from, from Hebrews. We esteemed him, one translation says, we re- regarded him as struck down by God. They would look at the Messiah and see he's been struck down by by God and afflicted. He was struck, Isaiah says, because of my people's rebellion. He was crushed for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. The stroke was actually due to the people, but, but this man of sorrows comes. He's struck down by God. He is afflicted. He's struck because of their sin. He's crushed for their transgression, even though the stroke was due to them. So that Good Friday, as we're preparing for Good Friday, think about this. Jesus was tested. He was tried as a criminal. The Roman soldiers actually came, and they struck him in the head with a rod, the text says. On the cross, remember, there's only seven phrases that the Word said on the cross that are recorded. One of those is, I thirst. 
That's one of the things he says. He's, he's experiencing the, the fullness of, of thirst and, and more than that. He's experiencing what it means when he would say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That, that same very test and question of, of, of the Lord being among or, or forsaking his people, he, he experiences the wrath of abandonment. He experiences that great, tremendous thirst for his people so that we never need to thirst in that way, so that we never need to doubt his presence, that we never need to be or feel abandoned like that. And then on Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday next week, uh, the stone is rolled away from the empty tomb because he is risen indeed. He is risen. He is risen indeed. We'll, we'll practice for next week. He is risen. What a Savior. After the prophecy of Jesus in Isaiah 53, he says this in Isaiah 55, Come, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He says, why would you, why would you come anywhere else? He says, come to me, seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near, let the wicked forsake his way. He says, come, everyone who thirsts, come, come to me. The prophet says, don't forsake, don't commit that evil of forsaking the Lord who is the fountain of living waters for broken cisterns that can hold no water. Sinners here, why do you fill yourself with what can never satisfy the thirst of your soul? Don't look to sin. Don't look to that mirage of of sin. Don't try to fill your broken vessel with the empty promises of this world. Come to the water of life that Jesus freely and fully, abundantly offers. Come and see your sin as foul and to his fountain fly and, and say, Wash me, Savior, or I die. Let the water and the blood from your wounded side which flowed be of sin, the double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. That's image right out of this from the rock of ages. We need from sin the double cure. We need to not only be saved from wrath, we need him to make us pure and he does both of those. That's our Savior. So look to him as your Lord. Look to him as your rock and your Redeemer as your greatest treasure. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the time of favor. You may not have tomorrow. You may not have later. Today, you hear his voice. Don't harden your heart. Come to him. This is the gospel according to Moses. Instead of pouring out wrath, God pours out water. He pours out grace. Listen to Psalm 78. He split the rocks in the desert and gave them water as abundant as the seas. He brought streams out of a rocky crag and made water flow down like rivers, but they continued to sin. They willfully put God to the test by demanding what they craved. When he struck the rock, water gushed out and streams flowed abundantly. And it says they remembered that God was their rock, that God most high was their redeemer. We need to remember that. Don't keep sinning. Don't keep craving. Don't keep quarreling and complaining. Look to the God who redeems. Psalm 36 praises the rock that his people drink their fill of the abundance of your house. 
Think of that language here, that, that even as we gather and as we worship, it's like we're drinking the fill of the abundance of God's house, and you have given them to drink the river of your delights, for with you is the fountain of life. That's Psalm 36. But if you reject that, if you refuse that, there is a lake of fire. The Bible talks about it. A place of eternal conscious torment where Luke 16 says unbelievers will perish eternally with a worse thirst than Israel had. In fact, Jesus described it this way, someone begging for someone to just dip the tip of a finger in water, just a, just a, a, little, a little bit of water on a finger. Could that just come and just, just cool off my tongue because I am in anguish in this torment? But there will be no quench for that thirst. Those fires will never be quenched for those who have rejected the water of life in this life. But here's how heaven is described. For those who receive the Lord Jesus, never again, Revelation 7, never again will they thirst. He will lead them to springs of living water. God is putting before you heaven and hell this day. Today, the gates of heaven are open to those who will come to the, to the Lord as their source of life. Israel had asked for water to be given to them to drink. Here's what Jesus said in John 4 on another hot day, sitting at a well, talking to a woman who had lived a sinful life and was living with someone who was not her husband. He said this, If you knew the gift of God... And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink. They're saying, give me, just like Israel was. But Jesus now is saying, if you knew who was asking you to give him a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And he says to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever, he's talking about the well now, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And this woman received that water, and she came and told others, and they said of him, could this indeed be the Savior of the world? And he is. And there was a feast that Israel did celebrating the events of the Exodus and the provision of water and all that. They had this ceremony where they would bring water out. It was a feast. Here's what John and Jesus in John 7 said as they're celebrating all these things. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And John explains he was talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. But he says, whoever believes, come to me. Whoever would thirst, come to me. Believe in me. And then one of the last verses of the Bible, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. It's Revelation 22. I heard the voice of Jesus say, behold, I freely give the living water, thirsty one, stoop down, drink Live, I came to Jesus and I drank of that life-giving stream. My thirst was quenched, my soul revived, and now I live in him. That's the free offer that is extended, that we're to extend. You can't earn it, you can't pay for it. We need to tell people, you need to come empty, humbly, hungry, and thirsty for a righteousness you know you don't have, and you can be satisfied in Christ. If you need help, come up 
front, even at the end of this service. We can pray with you about any spiritual need that you have. And if you're already a believer, part of, you're part of the bride of Christ at the end of the Bible. You're part of the bride that is to say, come. We're to tell others, come. Come to the water of life. Those who hear are to say, come. We're to extend the invitation. Who can you invite to come even this next Sunday, this next Friday, this coming week? Who can you invite to come? As believers, we need to come to the Lord daily and early in his living word. Like Psalm 63, early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you like in a dry and weary land where there is no water. It is very spiritually dry out there in the places that we're going to this week. We need our souls to be filled with the Lord like the deer pants for the water. So our souls need to long after and thirst for the living God. If you're not drinking water daily, if you're not filling yourself with the word daily, you're going to become dry and parched, and you probably are already today. And tomorrow, come to his word. And every day, as you hear his word, don't harden your heart. I'll close with this, turning our complaining to praising, like Psalm 107. Thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them. For he satisfies the longing soul. He turns rivers into desert springs of water. To thirsty ground, he turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water. What's the application of that from Psalm 107? Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love. So let's thank the Lord in prayer and also at his table. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for your word. It is our living water, the bread of life that is in Christ. I pray, Lord, that as we think on these things, that we would remember you, that you would be of sin, that double cure. Even today, you have saved so many of us of your wrath, but we need to also be made pure. And so as we come to your table, even to drink these symbols and Eat of these symbols, Lord, help us to be more purified, more like Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.